Sometimes evil seems to win. We know that in our own story. We know that in our country. We know that in the world around us, sometimes evil seems to win. Sometimes evil and death take from us those we most trusted, admired, even those in whom our faith rested. And in the movie clip we have just seen, we see uh, a story from uh, Lord of the Rings, movie number one, The Fellowship of the Ring, which is J.R.R. Tolkien's as it were, Christian imagination mingled with a lot of mythology and other things, and I'm not an expert on Tolkien. I do know that he was a believer and that he wanted to communicate something of the Christian message in ways that other people could relate to. In fact, he was very instrumental in leading C.S. Lewis uh, to come to faith. We know him for many of his publications. And in the story you've just seen, Gandalf, the wizard that we saw, the leader and mentor of a disparate group of hobbits and dwarves and elves and the inhabitants of Middle-earth, they just seem to be succeeding at some of their first aims, retrieving a powerful ring that could be used either for tremendous good or terrible evil. When evil retaliates and snatches away their leader. And this fellowship of the ring, Tolkien gets them collectively to encapsulate some of the messianic attributes that are in the story and in the person of Jesus. But unlike Jesus, all of them are incomplete in themselves. So the innocent hobbits must find courage. The resourceful and independent and stubborn dwarves must learn trust and community. The humans must break out of their complacency and stop seeking comfort and security as their greatest good. And each is tested most when their leader is taken from them. And as you saw towards the end of the clip, the grief, their confusion, their loss, their desperate sorrow sees them collapse powerless in grief after their dash to relative safety out of the mountain. Yet even this classic scene in literature and in cinematography and art fall short of several Easter realities that we've come to remember today. You see, unlike the Fellowship of the Ring, the disciples had no quest outside of their leader himself. Something could happen to Gandalf, but the quest still continued for the rest of them. But everything depended upon Jesus himself for those first followers. Everything 
He taught everything he demonstrated, pointed to himself. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd, said Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. They understood that with Jesus dead, his message and his mission die with him. Their grief would have been far greater than anything than what we have just seen. And unlike Gandalf, the conflict, the encounter, the power encounter with evil from the parallel scene in Christian history does not appear to be heroic at all. Jesus does not seem to do to fight, does not seem to do battle except in prayer. And his greatest struggle seems to be with his own distress at what this will cost him. Father, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass from me, was his struggle. Instead, he offers no defense, no fight, when accused in a rigged trial, and then is led like a lamb to the slaughter, mocked and beaten, lashed 39 times in a flogging that in itself could be fatal. He's too weak to carry his cross to the place where he would be pierced with nails and fastened to that cross. There he hangs. Not heroic. Betrayed. Denied. Deserted. Naked. Seemingly shameful. Even his words somewhat mystifying. Some of his words so powerfully concerned for others, telling John to take care of his mom, telling a criminal at his side, today you'll be with me in paradise, crying out, asking God why he's been forsaken. And finally, as loudly as he could, shouting, it is finished. This hardly seems to be the stuff of victories. Now, as we heard earlier, this is Friday. Sunday's coming. But I do need to say this, in spite of the appearances, Friday is not a defeat. Friday is the victory. In our last song we sang it, this is the power of the cross. There's something happening on the Friday that will be vindicated on the Sunday. But Friday is not a defeat. Friday is the definitive victory of God. 
that will shape history for all time. The apostolic witness is that the cross itself has won the victory. The cross itself contains God's power. The cross itself is where evil is defeated. And no, they did not understand it on that day. But they did understand that the cross itself gives us what I want to look at today as our sermon. Why evil can no longer win. Why evil can never win. So turn with me to First Peter chapter 2. He's just told them that they're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God who are going to declare God's praises. And then seemingly we go into a bit of a confusing space with instructions to slaves and wives and everything like that and teaching about the cross and how we submit to the emperor. So let's just dive in. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which, notice the warfare language, wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, the unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperors, the supreme authority, or to governors sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. It is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. It is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. But never, do not use your freedom to cover up evil. You're living as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Keep honoring the emperor. What's this got to do with Good Friday? I'm glad you asked. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure that? But if you suffer for good, if you suffer for doing good, and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. And now we go to the middle of Good Friday. Because Christ suffered for you. Leaving you an example. This is Peter who had denied Jesus. This is Peter who could barely look from a distance. This is Peter who had to rely on second-hand information after following everyone. Now he understands. This is Peter's reflection after the fact. Probably several decades. 
To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Is that not an amazing sentence? He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. It has a direct purpose. By his wounds, you've been made whole. You've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So this Good Friday, we join Peter after decades of reflection. Writing to believers in about five Roman provinces, pretty much in modern-day Turkey. And he's speaking to them in a situation of ongoing Roman oppression. And he calls them chosen, he calls them royal, he calls them holy, and he says, you're the people who belong to God. Now, for a Jew to write that to Gentiles, you must know he's had a radical rediscovery about a whole lot of things. But these are people living in their homes, but now they have such a sense of their place and calling in God that they themselves have become, as it were, Pilgrims, foreigners, exiles, even among their own people. Because their ways are no longer the ways of the communities in which they live. They have been transformed. Their holiness makes them brand new, a new nation as it were, growing in the face of oppression, opposition, suffering, persecution, the confiscation of their homes and their properties and worse. And they're confronting this empire. What are these citizens in the light of Calvary meant to do with their new nation status? Well, they are to wage war against all sin, verse 11. They're to choose goodness, live such a good life, verse 12. Verse 13 and 14, for the Lord's sake, they submit to submit to human authority wherever possible. We know Peter himself put limits on that. He said, you tell us if it's right to obey men or God. Verse 15, that uh, this radiant holiness and goodness and love will silence ignorant people who accuse us of causing harm or even being treasonous. Then verse 17, it's just pure genius. You know, honor everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, keep honoring the emperor. And we know that the apex commands of the Christian faith is to love one another and make God the highest priority that we have. 
And in biblical terms, that's often spoken of as the fear of God. They are at the center. But then he brackets it with honor everyone and honor the emperor. Now think about this. This is power encounters going on. These things were all happening right there in Jerusalem. Honor everyone, honor the emperor. What's he doing? Well, number one, he's, he's using the exact same word. And your English translation doesn't necessarily reflect that, which isn't very helpful. So they say, respect everyone, honor the emperor. What does that mean? No, no, no. He uses the exact same word. In other words, he's treating everyone like royalty. That's what followers of Jesus do. They recognize the value of every single person deserving of great honor and value. Recognize the image of God in them. And if they're saved, recognize the presence of God through them. And so the lowest slaves receive as much honor as Caesar. Treat slaves as though they are Caesar. Honor everyone. And then he humanizes Caesar. Caesar is given honor because, well, he's just like everybody else. He's also made in the image of God. No, he's not God. And he humanizes the oppressor. You know, the temptation when we are confronted by evil, especially through people, is to demonize those who take advantage of their power. And we dishonor them. He says, don't do that. You know, people with great deals of power and all that kind of stuff and money and resources and influence and tenders and who knows what else in South Africa, they understand hate. They understand bitterness. They understand manipulation and control. Peter says, blow them away with love and with honor. And then, of course, the genius is that he avoids the charge of treason because he's telling people, honor Caesar. <laughs> but he refuses to make Caesar anything more than a servant of God. And then Peter goes after some of the most oppressive social constructs that the believers were being confronted with right there. Roman slavery and marriage to an unbelie unbelieving husband in a deeply patriarchal society. Now you're thinking, what on earth has this got to do with Good Friday? Well, Peter thinks it's got a lot to do with Good Friday because he's about to get to talking about the cross. And his advice was just as counterintuitive then as it is to us now. It seems as though he's legitimating and reinforcing oppression, using the gospel as the dope to dumb down the masses who should go about, you know, rebelling and overthrowing Rome and all the rest of it. Not so. You see, Peter knows this. That the cross changes the way the world changes. The cross changes the world, but the cross changes the way the world will change. And so he identifies three things about the cross. The cross is about identification with those who suffer. Christ suffered for you. 
leaving you as an example. You also suffer. You also follow in his footsteps. And part of our suffering is to recognize where suffering is and be unafraid. Jesus suffered and died so that we might know that God himself is on the side of those who suffer, on the side of those who are oppressed. God is not distant from suffering. He moves towards it with redemptive intent. He himself comes to give himself for those who suffer. But he also comes to give himself for those who inflict suffering. And so the cross, yes, is about identification. He became us, 2 Corinthians 5, by becoming sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The cross is about what we call substitutionary atonement. Jesus took our place. And he was a legitimate substitute. He was fully and completely human. He never cheated throughout his life and somehow held on to his divine advantages. He got just as tired as we would. He got just as tempted to be frustrated or misdirected or resentful or bitter. And he did not. Peter says that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. An authentic substitute. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And it's through this substitute that by his wounds we are healed. We sang about it again and again. Christ has atoned for sin by offering himself in our place, in love facing justice on our behalf. We are forgiven by trusting him, him alone, for what he has done for us. The moment we try and trust in our own goodness, it's as if we look at Jesus on the cross and say, you're not good enough. And so renouncing good works is partly done through this conviction that the offering that Jesus made is all that was ever needed. Does that make sense? You must not think for a moment that you have to pay for your sin. Or that when something goes wrong, now God is punishing me. Scripture makes it very clear that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And so his death on the cross is the legal basis for our forgiveness that is both given and received. Because justice has been served on Jesus. And so there's this, holding this, the example and the atonement. On one hand, easy forgiveness and you know, simple ticket to heaven theology is knocked on its head by the call to follow Jesus in suffering. And yet option two insists, or 
Number two insists that without forgiveness, our good works are filled with pride and guilt and manipulation. But there is something else going on in the cross. And Peter actually spends most time, most of the passage is focused on the third point, is that the cross reveals the power that changes the world. So imagine for a moment a large wetland high up in a mountain plateau. And a storm breaks even higher up in the mountains and a flood of mud and water and debris and rocks come crashing down the mountain because the water is so much and it rushes down and it rushes into this wetland. Yet the wetland, because of its capacity, its size, takes it all in. And so the rocks stop. And the water comes in and it fills the wetland. But the wetland absorbs all that it takes. And eventually the water reaches stillness and all the impurities. And everything that was high up in the mountain that came rushing down settled to the bottom of the wetland. And by the time you get... To the edge of the wetland, the far side, all that passes is pure life-giving water. The debris is trapped, and only that which flows from the wetland is safe. Something like this happens on the cross. On the cross... Jesus takes into himself, in his body, the flood of sin, the flood of impression, the flood of violence, the flood of hate, the flood of injustice, the flood of immorality, the flood of every sin in the world. And the Bible explicitly names the different kinds of evil that were coming against Jesus on the cross. It is demonic evil. If Satan has known what he was instigating on that day, he would not have been party to the crucifixion because he was actually party to his own defeat. But it was demonic evil coming against him. It was structural evil. The most powerful human empire gone rogue in its rebellion to God tries to wash its hands yet nails him to the cross. And it is religion, human religion at its worst and it's most prideful, and it's most judgmental, satisfied to crucify an innocent man in the name of their faith. And it is personal. He faces intimate betrayal, denial, and profound human responsibility. And it all rushes into the wetland of Jesus. And the only thing that passes, observes John in his prologue, is grace and truth. What came through Jesus? What got past Jesus? And this is the point that Tolkien is making in representing Gandalf's encounter with evil as a small mirror of Jesus. When Gandalf stands at the beginning, he says, you shall not pass. And eventually when you know, it's coming at him and coming at him, he says, you shall not pass. And he makes his stand. 
But of course, in the drama, is himself the victim of evil. What does it mean, you shall not pass? That evil literally exhausted itself, spent itself in Jesus. See, the danger is that evil feeds off what it triggers in its victims. Think of that for a moment. Whenever there's an innocent victim, evil feeds off what it triggers inside even the innocent. Grievance becomes bitterness. Rage becomes revenge. Revenge becomes retaliation. And each successive reaction escalates and perpetrates, uh, I mean, perpetuates because the victims become the perpetrators eventually. Live as a victim long enough and you'll sure become a perpetrator. So the only way to defeat evil is to refuse to react to it, become like it. And everything we see in Good Friday in Jesus, from Gethsemane to Calvary, but in fact his entire life, is to contain and arrest every kind of evil, literally in his body. The worst that empire could do, the worst that Satan could do, the worst that relationships could do, the worst anyone could do. And hanging on that cross, he says, you stop here. You stop now. You shall not pass. Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what's going on. Evil can't win when evil can't pass. You shall not pass. On the cross, Jesus arrests evil. Peter understands this. Then in his body, it literally comes to a halt. Evil will never gain an ultimate victory because it never will get past our Jesus. Now, what does this mean? I mean, there's so many implications, even, even in our own country, as we look at world history, as we anticipate the coming of Jesus again. I mean, this literally changes everything. But may I just suggest one thing for us this morning, which is the center of Peter's concern for these slaves and these women in abusive situations. Just this. How... We fight the battle is the battle. Who we are in the moments when evil comes against us is the greatest challenge we will face. Evil is not threatened or defeated by the powerful. It is crushed by those who, with Jesus, refuse to use evil means to fight evil in anyone else. How we fight the battle is the battle. Jesus uses the willingness to suffer and the power of grace, his willingness to forgive as the way to tell evil. 
stop here. You're going no further. Your power ends now. Yes, our forgiveness is secured, but we need to understand that ultimately, according to Colossians chapter 2, the enemy himself has become an embarrassed public spectacle because of the way Jesus conducted himself on the cross. And to this we are called. This is the victory of the cross. And the kingdom of God is breaking in on earth even now. Every time someone demonstrates the nature of Christ. This challenges us to do the same. Yes, we can only ever do this fully relying on the forgiveness of Jesus. Nothing I say today detracts from the fact that he died for our sin. We are not atoning by copying Jesus. He's the only atonement. He bore our sins in his body, and if we believe that, we trust him, and we refuse to rely on good works. And yet we do those good works, unafraid of suffering, identifying with those in pain, facing injustice, and we learn in each struggle to say to evil, coming at us from the structures and the people and the stories and everything around us, I won't retaliate. I don't need revenge. I won't give in to bitterness or rage. Because I too have learned to say to evil, you stop here. Because of Jesus, you shall not pass. You know, Jesus taught us to pray. And we're coming to the Lord's table. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Both are possible and both are necessary because of the cross. Can I ask you two profound and yet profoundly simple questions? As I look to Jesus on the cross, who am I trusting for forgiveness? Our only hope is Jesus. You cannot trust anything you've done as a reliable basis to say, Father, forgive me. Forgive us our sins. Where do I need forgiveness? As we come to the Lord's table, we have this profound Easter, Good Friday opportunity of searching our hearts, bringing that to God, and freely and fully receiving by faith the forgiveness that we need and the freedom from that. But you know, so often evil is not just what comes from us, it's what comes at us. And so the question on this Good Friday, which is also part of the communion table journey, is who do I need to forgive? 
Who do I need to forgive instead of hold anger? Or just a vague discomfort and alienation? Who do I need to forgive so that I myself do not give evil the opportunity to pass? Those are big questions. But those are Good Friday questions. Those are the Lord's table questions. You know, Paul said when we come to this table, we pause and we search our hearts. This table is for those who know and love the Lord, trust Him for the forgiveness of their sins. And that is an open invitation. But the table's also a place to make sure that I am not allowing evil to come through me because I'm leaving relationships in a state of brokenness and harm and hurt and anger. So as we come to this table, who do I need to forgive? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the tremendous victory one on the cross, one for us. Defeating sin and evil in all its forms, in all its iterations, and in every possible expression. There's nothing you have not paid for, nothing you have not overcome. And so as we come, we come to remember, we come to say thank you, and we also come to do a spiritual inventory and ask that out of this Easter there would be a restoration of your purposes for good through our lives. And so maybe very simply you want to ask or pray your forgiveness to God if there's anyone that you need to release from your disappointment, your hurt, and from the things that they've done to you. Forgiveness is not saying it doesn't matter. In fact, it's a form of protest. It's so important that I have to go to God. But forgiveness releases them from retaliation and opens you up to the possibility of restoration. 